Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and the raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Okay, before we get into the movies we covered this week, just want to mention we dropped a new episode today. We did a daddy deep dive with our new friend, Juno Juno nominated artist. So freaking cool to say that. Uh, just nominated for his first Juno, Rich O'Coin. He's a friend that we made recently, and we really wanted to have him on the show. And he picked a banger of a movie for us to cover. It's one of our favorite movies. It's the film Beginners by Mike Mills. So we had a deep dive, had a great conversation, told some personal stories and some anecdotes. And uh, it was great. It was a really fun conversation. So that episode is up now. For you to enjoy. By uh, now we mean it's been up for a few days by the time you're listening to this. That's true. I, I'm I'm living in the past if you're listening to this now. <laughs> <laughs> it dropped today as of recording. That's but, right. Um, several days ago as of you listening. It's out now. now. Listen it's now. It's out. <laughs> <laughs> um, something else we need to quickly mention is if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, We've been having some technical issues with them where our episodes have been uploading at our regular time, which is 2 a.m. Mountain Time. We do that so that we can try and catch all the time zones so that the episode is up when you wake up, hopefully, um, as best we can to capture as many of those time zones as possible. And for some reason on our deep dive episode with Rich and on last week's episode, um, we woke up when we woke up, which is not at 2 a.m., 
and the episode had pushed to all of the other platforms. If you listen to it on Spotify or Overcast or Podchaser or Google Podcasts or wherever. Wherever else you get your podcasts. It was up um, and it wasn't up on Apple. So we are trying to figure out why that is happening. Yeah, we've reached out. We're waiting for a response. Trying to get it solved because uh, we uh, we really appreciate those who listen and we love being a part of your daily routine and we understand how frustrating it can be when you might be expecting us to have our episode up and it's not there. So we're actively trying to fix it and hopefully it'll be solved soon. And hopefully it's already been solved and this was up at the regular time. Yeah. Um, but we, yeah, we're getting getting down to it. Happened twice so we know it's a consistent problem and we want to solve that. We had 49 plus episodes where it worked just fine. Yeah. And for some reason, there's been some sort of a hitch between our hosting site and Apple and we're trying to figure it out. Unless it's just Apple trying to lean into Valentine's Day and play a little hard to get. Maybe. Which, uh, I mean, I don't I don't appreciate. <laughs> I don't appreciate it either. So yeah. we're saying no, no hard to get. Let's just be reliable. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, Yes, hopefully that that has already been fixed today. Um, if not, and it persists until we get it fixed, please know that as soon as we wake up in the morning, we manually ensure that it gets back up online. And we are frustrated too. Um, and we thank you for your patience. Yes. Appreciate all of you. Sorry for the pee-pee poo-poo. Okay, all that housekeeping out of the way. Let's get into the movies we watched this week. We watched five smackaroonies and... Uh, Kylie, why don't you kick us off with the first smackaroonie? Oh, you're asking me to do this so that I can pronounce the Russian names, are you? <laughs> I see what is happening. Gotcha. All right. We saw our first Tarkovsky film, which has been a long time coming mm -hmm. and is wild that we hadn't and now wild that we have. Um, and what made this our first Tarkovsky film is they were playing it at Metro. Classic way for us to decide we're finally ready to watch a movie. So we went and saw the 1975 biography drama, Mirror. It was directed and written by Andrei Tarkovsky, with co-writing by Alexander Mishirin, and poems that were read and written by Andrei Tarkovsky's fa father, Arseniy Tarkovsky. Um, it stars Margarita Terekova as Natalia and Marusia, otherwise known as the mother, Oleg Oleg Yankovsky as the father, Philippe Yankovsky as Alexei, and Ignat Dalitsev as Ignat slash Alexei. Um, so lots of dual things going on here. The synopsis is a dying man in his 40s remembers his past, his childhood, his mother, the war, personal moments, and things that tell of the recent history of all the Russian nation. We obviously have heard Tarkovsky's name. We knew that we should watch a, if not all, Tarkovsky films at some point. Um, and this happened to be the first one. What did you think of Mirror? Yeah, I was really excited for this because of all of the Tarkovsky movies. I think it's between this and Stalker that was kind of top of my list mm -hmm. in being excited to watch. So I was really stoked when this was coming to Metro um, and did not know what to expect. Like you said, like I, we know that we were eventually going to watch this and that he's super revered. Um, yeah, this kind of just put my mind in the brain blender a little bit. Um, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, didn't know, didn't know how 
just kind of I don't know it, it it's so grounded yet otherworldly at the same mm. time um you feel like you're, you're just watching this very straight kind of drama piece and then all of a sudden it, it'll hit you with this very dreamy like sequence that is so compelling and so jarring because it takes you out of what has been going on in the main story or in the in the waking uh in the waking hours of the main story um but it's yeah it's really well executed like it's gorgeous i think we'd be remiss not to mention that this is part of the second year of a curated programming called slowed down sundays at metro and I don't know how we ended up not seeing anything last year. Actually, I think I do know how. I think it was when we were um, selling our house and buying a new house. And that was an incredibly stressful time. Checks out. Um, but I remember really wanting to see all the films they did last year. They did a Kelly Reichardt film. They did uh, Stalker. Uh, they did Jean Delmont. And like I wanted to see all of them. And it just wasn't going to work. Um, and so they've got four films this time. And... We're see we obviously saw Mirror and we're gonna go see um Beautrevi in a couple weeks. But I didn't necessarily know the um uh, reasoning behind this programming. I love the name, Slowed Down Sundays. They're one o'clock matinees and they tend to be the slower films. Um, but the fellow who is the programmer for it, the curator for it, and he co- curated with somebody else last year but is solely doing it this year um thomas wishloff he spoke uh before mirror and i thought he just had some incredibly thoughtful things to say both about the programming and about the film um and one of the things that he said is he and a, a another person had conceived of slowed down sundays as this idea of challenging the idea of the sleepy matinee or like reinvigorating it in a purposeful way um, and that all of the films in it are part of like the slow cinema movement. But something else that he said, which is actually something that you and I have been talking about a lot lately and I've been talking about with other people, is the idea that sometimes a film doesn't click the first time mm. or does click the first time and then unclicks later. Mm. And the way he spoke about it, I really liked the language that he used was that a film opens up to you mm-hmm. and that he spoke about how Mir hasn't quite opened up to him yet, despite the fact that he's seen it, if, it seemed like a few times and that he trusts that at a certain point in his life, he will watch it and it will open up to him. Um, this is something that I'd been talking about with her friend, Lori, um, who has the podcast Queer Horror Cult, which we've been on and she's been on our show about Suspiria and about the first time we watched Suspiria, it just didn't quite jive with us. Um, Now we know Lori loves Suspiria. And so I was both so interested and so put at ease when she reached out and said Suspiria didn't click for her the first couple times either. And it, you know, between that conversation and, um, what the curator said before Mirror, it just had me thinking about how we talk about films that we don't like or that we don't gel with. Mm. Um, And by we, I mean the royal we of like people in general. And how like my favorite thing about art, and I know we've talked about this before, is how 
the way that we relate to a piece of art, whether it's a song or a painting we have up in our house or a movie, can change both in subtle ways, like, oh, this is something I noticed this time, or this is something I connected with this time, or I find I'm not connecting with this part of it, but I still love the film as a whole, but also in really big ways, which is it didn't make sense to me, it didn't work for me, and then all of a sudden it opens up to you at the right moment in the right time and you just click with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I like to talk about films both that I like and that I don't like with the understanding that that can change. Yeah. Yeah, I really I really like that that line of thinking. And while you were talking, it kind of got me just thinking about people that review films um i'll stay specifically with films but it can apply to all art of how they try to use and utilize their influence to get people to not see something or to see something and so many reviews you see can be so one way or another like that and that's either worth it or it's not exactly but i like to like kind of reflecting on what we do here it's almost like we're not at least we try not to fit things into that binary. Whereas unless we, it's after sun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I mean, if it's the stuff we really, really love, we want to share it with everybody, but that's getting to my point of we're here to encourage people to watch more movies, to experience more art because mm-hmm. we love it so much. And there's so much out there that we've yet to discover, but it's so fun to be on this journey to find like to find that next uh, amazing film or to find our next favorite movie or just like that constant dopamine drip of watching film after film. Or to find the thing that thing that pisses you off, right? Like, yeah, I think that's valuable too. Um, and I think I just like to remain open to the fact that a film or a piece of art can shift with me as I shift. Um, because getting back to Mirror, I didn't feel like it entirely clicked for me. Yeah. And yet, I feel like at some point it might. Yeah. And I don't know if that'll be, it's just one of those films. Sometimes I see a film and I'm like, it needs a second viewing. This happened with Infinity Pool, which we covered last week. That I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to like it even more a second time. Mm-hmm. Or there's been times where I've seen a movie and I've loved it. And I'm like, I know I'm not going to like it as much a second time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Black Phone is one of them. I'm like, I know when I watch it again, it's going to just not be nearly as good. And we rewatched Bodies, Bodies, Bodies this week, which we're not going to cover because we've covered it before. But in rewatching it, I was like, yeah, it loses some of the magic that I felt knowing how it ends. It just it wasn't as sharp. It didn't offer me enough um, ways to to view it. From new angles, knowing the ending. Mm. Um, And I liked it just a little bit less. Yeah. And so. I like to remain open to that, that there'll be shifts and changes, subtle and big. Um, I really liked this movie and there was individual moments in Mirror that just dug into me. But as a whole, it didn't quite click the way that I thought it might. Yeah. I mean, I was like I was saying, it was, it's gorgeous and it's assembled really well well acted it has some beats that do have some really big impact 
but I feel the same way. It's it didn't it didn't grip me in a way that I immediately want to return to it or I you know immediately want to dive into all of Tarkovsky's work cuz well I imagine that it is different from film to film. He obviously has a style and an approach that takes patience mm-hmm. and requires a little bit of understanding of where he's coming from and they would kind of make you make you sing for your supper a little bit. What do you mean by that? That you have to be an active participant in watching mm. the film and there's a little bit of, of work required of the viewer to kind of follow this, the string, the strands that he's trying to weave. At least that's how I felt uh, watching the film. Like there's, there's a lot I'm trying to follow and then I think even after we watched it, I'm like, this is what I understood. Did you understand this like that? But I also think that this film is made in such a way that it doesn't have to be that clear cut. Mm. Like You don't have to understand it, if that makes sense. Maybe. I wonder if it's just me getting older, but... We've had a few conversations lately now about the movies we've been watching where I'm looking for like very literal interpretations of stuff. Maybe I'm just like, <laughs> I'm getting simpler as I'm getting older. My just therapist like, would say, get out of your head and what, how, did, how do you feel? Out of the head. You're getting too much into the think, you're losing the feel. I do think, so this feels like for me that Mirror could be like a favorite film of mine and just for some reason on the particular day that we watched it, it didn't click, mm-hmm. despite the fact that I really liked it, um, and despite the fact that I understood the craft of it, and was like, "Oh, I get why people love this guy's films." Mm-hmm. Um, now, I didn't know that this was a biography. In terms of biography, this is how I like biography. I like works of memoir, creative nonfiction, um, works that draw on personal experience, life experience. Not unlike Beginners, which we covered in our deep dive a few days ago. I like those kinds of work that attempt to narrate meaning out of memory and experiences without trying to present as truth, as a literal fact, um, and instead understand that memory is faulty, understand that there's a subjectivity to how we recollect our past and this film encompasses that in how it is structured and shot. Mm-hmm. That at times memories come to us clearly. At times they come to us in nightmare imagery. Mm-hmm. And at times they conflict with other people's understandings of the same events. So when um, Tarkovsky made this, He originally was making it as a memoir, like a written memoir. Um, And at that time, it was called A White, White Day. That was his idea for the title. Um, And he, in an interview, said that it was just full of sadness and nostalgia for his childhood. And he just, he was writing it very literally, like, here's a memoir of my life. And it wasn't working the way that he wanted it to. So he started on a second draft where he interviewed his mom to look for her memories of the same events as Mm -hmm. a counterpoint to his own. And that's where this film came out of. Right. So both his mother's understanding of events and his understanding of events kind of melded together. And I have a quote from him where he says, as I began work on Mirror, I found myself reflecting more and more that if you were serious about your work, 
then a film is not the next item in your career. It is an action which will affect the whole of your life. For I had made up my mind that in this film, for the first time, I would use the means of cinema to talk of all that was most precious to me and do so directly without playing any kinds of tricks. So it's interesting to me that you say, like, you struggled to find a literal meaning and you struggled to connect with it in that way when, for him, this was the most his soul was laid bare in film. Yeah, and for me, I can I can feel that. I feel like I just needed a little bit more clarity and I don't know why I felt that way. Um, Cause like I, I immediately, as soon as the movie was done and we got home, I like jumped into Wikipedia and started jumping into like some threads to try to get a little bit better of an understanding of it. And I, 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 don't, I don't know why I couldn't have just let the experience kind of wash over me a little bit more. And I was digging for, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Do you think that's the film or do you think it's just you in that particular moment with this film? Maybe it might. Yeah. It might be just me maybe feeling a little bit. (laughs) What's a word I can use? Maybe just out of the loop of what the film was trying to say and feeling like I missed something. But that's what's so interesting to me is that even the programmer said that the film hasn't opened up to him yet. Yeah, I think that's a good way to come back to it. Maybe that's what it is. And maybe watching this, I don't know, in 10 years, then it'll be that's that'll be the, the sweet spot for me. Because this is, um, well, as like a counterpoint to Mirror, in our fourth episode ever for this show, which I personally think is a real good episode, <laughs> we watched our first Bergman film. Mm-hmm persona and i i personally didn't while i didn't necessarily understand everything on a literal level i just felt secure in my connection with the film without needing to seek out more same maybe yeah you know maybe mirror just presented itself at i don't want to say the wrong time but maybe not the time that we needed it or that i needed it at least and there's also a difference between seeing something in the theater and being surrounded by all these people who like love this film and you know as opposed to seeing it at home when you're like okay i'm ready to watch a tarkovsky film mm-hmm. right and it's interesting because <laughs> we're going to talk about this later in the episode in the last uh, film that we watched this week um but this was quite a busy show it's a very yeah. quiet movie and the audience was so engaged and mm-hmm. so respectful um Unlike some audiences later this week. (laughs) Which is a reflection not on the theater, but on the people coming to see the movie. Mm -hmm. And so there was something about this movie that, you know, when we get a chance to see a film like this in the theater, so it's not a new film. Mm -hmm. It's on Criterion. We have Criterion Channel. We could have watched it at home. But seeing it in the theater, I am very moved by the power of communal viewing. Yeah. Of the fact that this is a Russian movie from the 70s that in fact was so disproved of by like the Russian film board or whatever it was called that they didn't give it a premiere that they put it into what's called a second category release where it only got 73 copies made (laughs) and yet we are watching it with more than 73 people yeah in a theater in Edmonton in 2023 Mm -hmm. incredible and everybody there is invested in either loving this film or seeing what it's about or 
expanding their cinema knowledge like it's that moves me to no end oh yeah and so i think um it's just incredibly special yeah and a testament to the film oh yeah a testament to the programming at metro and a testament to the people who came out to see that and i just i'm really i'm i am really moved by that and to go back to bergman who we we saw his first film the the first film that we had seen of his and were just blown away mhm he was a big admirer of Tarkovsky. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a quote from him where he said, my discovery of Tarkovsky's first film was like a miracle. Suddenly I found myself standing at the door of a room, the keys of which had until then never been given to me. It was a room I had always wanted to enter and where he was moving freely and fully at ease. I felt encountered and stimulated. Someone was expressing what I had always wanted to say without knowing how. Tarkovsky is for me the greatest, the one who invented a new language, true to the nature of film as it captures life as a reflection, life as a dream. Mm. Just beautiful. That's really nice. And I think of that, and I think of how much I like Persona, which I believe came out before this. So like, Mm -hmm. also just so inspiring and um, I think admirable to see someone who is so respected like Bergman say, I'm in the midst of a really successful career. And this guy's doing it better and he will inspire me from this point out. Mm-hmm. Like we should all be humble enough to continue to look for inspiration and continue to grow in our craft which and as people. You, which you can't really blame him for saying such a thing because this does not feel like it came out in 75. Like it feels very contemporary to me. Yeah. it's And there is a particular scene that I was, well, the whole movie didn't necessarily click for me. There's a scene with like, the mother character washing her hair. Yeah. That is one of the best things I've ever seen in my entire life. Very good. For me, like it just, it was both haunting and kind of scary in a Lynchian way where you like can't quite make sense of why it's scaring you or like that one moment in Parasite. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet so beautiful and yet indelible and and yet also feels like I have seen things like this in my dreams. I don't know. It was just... It was just wild. Um, there's a critic, Auntie Allen, who calls this film a space odyssey into the interior psyche. Mm. It's like think 2001 A Space Odyssey, but in the mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think knowing all of that, I'm interested in revisiting this at some point. Probably at home. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I agree with, with what you said. Like, I think... There's something special about that communal experience. That's why we go to the theater so much, even though we're dealing with a lot more piss audiences than ever before. But not at this one. Yeah, but it it is seeking out that communal experience and enjoying a film that we're all here to see together. And I mean, ideally enjoying it. But yeah, while this didn't fire on all cylinders for me on this viewing, I look forward to revisiting it at a time when now having seen it, I'm ready to revisit it. I just, I like the idea of acknowledging the self in the viewing experience because this is undoubtedly one of the best films ever made. Oh, yeah. So to say it didn't click or it didn't work is not a critique of the film, but it's where either of us are individually at in the moment that we view a film. Oh, yeah. That's all of, all of what I've said. It's all just a me thing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's it. I'm the same way with, and I'm sure we've talked about this on the show. I'm the same way, same way with music. If somebody is wants me to listen to a very specific piece of music, 
and they send it to me, I will listen to it when I'm ready to listen to it. Because if I'm forced to listen to it, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily in the mindset to appreciate it the way that that person would want me to appreciate it in that moment. Sometimes you don't know, though, right? Like, I don't think we knew whether we would or would not be receptive to mirror in that moment. And it might not even be a that singular moment. It might be just this point in our lives, right? That's like, oh yeah, like I said, and maybe in 10 years, this will be our Your jam. favorite movie you've ever seen. Do you want to hear some of the other titles it went through? Sure. Confession. Mm. Redemption. Mm. Martyrology. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Why are you standing so far away? So that's, that's not bad. The Raging Stream. It sounds like a hot piss. <laughs> and then there was a white white day which was the original working title of the memoir version but sometimes that has been translated as a bright bright day mm. lots of titles last thing i want to say about this um because i find it really interesting is that um a couple things that critics have have written about this film and about tarkovsky in general and i do want to see some of his other films yeah um, and I do, I just, I feel like at some point this film is going to, to use the language of the curator, open up to me and I'm going to just be awash in it. I'm going to love it because um, the critic Howard Hampton has said that Tarkovsky's films, but this one in particular, are about the inescapable persistence of the past, which is something that I am very invested in exploring. And then um, this is something I thought you would be interested in is the critic Natasha Sinesios said that uh, Tarkovsky's films always maintain or he always Tarkovsky always maintained that he used the laws of music as his film's organizational principle mm. and emphasis was placed not on logic, but on form and flow of events. Yeah, I can see that reflecting on it now. Like I said, like, like the film itself is beautiful and the way that it plays out is so you feel so much intention behind it and yeah it does have that sort of flow and a rhythm to it yeah yeah i really like that i look forward to revisiting this um i'm not i'm not writing it off by any means and i i respect what it's doing and i'm really happy that we saw it when we've seen it and in the conditions of which we saw it but uh Made me reflective, and I think that that's the mark of a really good film. How did it make you feel? It's funny because I, I feel like you know I, I I was thinking like it kind of broke my brain in the best way, and it's made me feel like I'm looking forward to revisiting Tarkovsky. But it also just made me reflective of uh of the importance of or um, it made me aware of the importance of being reflective when it comes to uh, film or the, the art that you consume. What about you? Um, it made me grateful for Metro, mm. both how phenomenally they program and how more often than not, there's a communal feeling in the audience. Yeah. Um, and it also, even though it didn't totally click for me this time, it, I was in awe of the art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. First mystery movie pick of the week was up to me. I chose the 2007 biopic crime drama Fruitvale Station. It was written and directed by Ryan Coogler, 
It stars Michael B. Jordan as Oscar, Melanie Diaz as Sofina, Octavia Spencer as Wanda, and Ariana Neal as Tatiana. Synopsis is, young Afro-American Oscar Grant crosses paths with family members, friends, enemies, and strangers before facing his fate on the platform at Fruitvale Station in the early morning hours of New Year's Day 2009. This has been on the list for a while. I've been really wanting to watch it. Um, but also, I feel like uh, we've mentioned this before. Wanted to exp- we, We've kind of talked about our thoughts and feelings about biopics in general, uh, which definitely is a part of this. But uh, yeah, we were looking forward to it. We're big fans of work that Ryan Coogler has done, as well as work that Michael B. Jordan has done. What do you think of Fruitvale Station? I didn't know it was a biopic. <laughs> no? No, I didn't. I honestly didn't know anything about it other than it was Ryan Coogler's first feature film and mm-hmm. Michael B. Jordan was in it. Um, I, I do need to point out, in case you don't know, Elliot, that we have now seen all of Ryan Coogler's feature films. Oh, wow. This was the last of his films for us to watch. Nice. Um, what I will say is, I, because I didn't actually know what this film was about other than I wanted to watch it because I like Ryan Coogler's work. I knew that it's a pretty lauded film. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really hard to watch as soon as within the first two minutes. I was like, oh, I now see what this is about. Mm-hmm. And I liked it. Um, I did feel very different from Coogler's other films, especially knowing that we've seen his whole filmography. Mm-hmm. But I struggle with biopics. Mm -hmm. And I think having this as a counterpoint with a mirror is so interesting because Tarkovsky is, in essence, making a biographical work. Um, Autobiographical would be the difference. But what I appreciate about something like Mirror, and I understand that it's not something that Fruitville Station could do while trying to tell the story it wanted to tell, But I think what becomes tricky is when biography, whether it's autobiography, biopic, what have you, when it presents as truth, as the only truth, it opens itself up to the critique of inaccuracy. Mm, Yeah. And that has been wielded against this film in ways that really suck. Oh, really? Yes. How so? Just people digging into Oscar Grant's life and saying that Kugler cherry picked what what to present and what not to mm. um, to make him appear in in a particular way or to make him more sympathetic. Um, people who critique how can I take any of this as truth when Kugler has admitted that the scene with the dog is something he came up with, right? Um, so I think when you take something and this is the same problem i encounter in my own brain with like when we watch jackie Mm -hmm. when i've seen bohemian rhapsody or whatever it might be when you present something as literal truth you're open now to the critique that it is not truth yeah or that it is an interpretation of events or a fictionalization of events um at best that's inaccurate at worst, it can be unethical. Right. I personally think in the case of Fruitvale Station, I actually think Ryan Coogler, in my mind, worked hard to present Oscar as 
neither perfectly good nor awfully bad. Yeah. Um, and I don't think he shied away from some of the parts of Oscar that might have people feeling particular ways about him. Mm-hmm. But then folks who want to take down what this film is about just have to say, well, if this one thing wasn't shown, how can we trust any of it? Yeah. And I just, so then what do you do? I think it's an inherent question, both ethical and artistic, when you're making something based on someone who is real. Do you feel, as a as a movie watcher, do you feel, is there a feeling of manipulation? I don't feel that way and I think I talked about this when we watched Jackie I don't feel manipulated I just feel like I would rather watch documentary mm. or I'd rather read nonfiction than watch a fictionalized version of something real right like I would rather watch a documentary or read a book about police violence against black folks mm-hmm. than a biopic that being said, I think it's really good. Yeah. But I think that my own inherent struggles with biopic, I, I don't know what the answer is because on the one hand, Ryan Coogler wants to honor this particular man and tell this particular man's story. But I think I would have been able, I, I don't, I just don't know because does it lose its power if you tell a completely fictionalized version and say that you're inspired by real life cases, but it's not Oscar Grant the third. It's a totally different person. I don't know. It's, it's an inherent struggle with the biopic. Cause I understand particularly in the case of this film, why Kugler decided to tell this particular story, but I still struggle with that. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I like I I also I don't I don't feel manipulated, but you do you do start to see when you're watching a biopic, you start to maybe see the devices that are being used to make you feel a certain way. Um and I agree with this film, it does feel like Ryan Coogler approached it with a fair balance of not making Oscar this absolute perfect hero and perfect human being there's complexity to him mm-hmm. um and i and i think that's important um and i think that i think the storytelling about oscar is delivered really amazingly by michael b jordan mm-hmm. and the supporting cast um and there's some real hard and difficult things to watch in this film and mm-hmm. and i feel like I feel like even that is done relatively tastefully. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not trying to be overly titillating. It's just trying to tell an honest story and it gives it to you from Oscar's perspective. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there is, I, I, I feel, I do feel challenged by biopics, no matter how good they may be of what are, what is the truth that's being told and what is just on screen and then to, that, you know, make me feel a certain way. But then that gets me back to Mirror, which is I 
appreciate more works that say truth is inherently subjective. And I am going to make a work of art that takes that as its starting point. And I think After yeah. Sun does a similar thing. I was about to say the same right? thing. Right, where it's, yes, this is based on personal experience. And I think Beginners does a similar thing. Mm-hmm. But I am starting from the point that this is my truth and that truth is not necessarily objective truth. Mm -hmm. I think because I personally inherently believe there is no such thing as objective truth that then this becomes a struggle and yet that takes away from what this film does so well and the importance of a film like this. Yeah. And I understand why this film, the mirror version of Fruitvale Station is not going mm -hmm. to accomplish what this film, in my mind, is setting out to accomplish. Yeah. Which then begs the question for me of audience. So who is the, tar who is the intended audience of this? Mm -hmm. Is this intended to bring awareness to police violence against people of color and particularly black folks mm -hmm. in America? If so, we might not be the intended audience. Mm -hmm. If so, people who are living that experience might not be the intended audience. Yeah. Right? In which case, this probably is the most successful approach Kugler could take. Yeah. To present this truth to a group of people. Mm-hmm. That's a really good thought exercise of who is this for? That's what I make my creative writing students do. <laughs> <laughs> I say if your targeted audience, if somebody who's not in the audience that you were creating your art for doesn't like your work, who really cares? Because it wasn't for them anyway. Mm -hmm. So I always tell them to start with who is my audience. And that doesn't have to be identity descriptors, mm -hmm. right? It could be... Um, people who are open to reflecting on their understanding of the world. That could be your audience. Or it could be people who are not open to reflecting on their understanding of the world and I want to challenge them to do that. Right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I haven't read enough or seen anything from Ryan Coogler about this. Um, and maybe he's spoken to what that is. Because um, I mean, in terms of it being like, say, a character study, of the of Oscar, who's not a character, who is a person, an mm -hmm. actual person. But then becomes a character, right? Yeah. I mean, th then that is, I think there is some strong storytelling here. But again, yeah, like it's, it's kind of, it's this tricky thing of where's the balance, where's the line of who Oscar the person was and who Michael B. Jordan is portraying on screen. As this version of Oscar. And what the goals of the film are, right? Yeah. It's interesting because um, I didn't know this until... Again, I didn't know what the film was about, and I didn't know this until after we watched it and I was looking it up. But the footage at the beginning of the film is real footage. Mm -hmm. um, and Ryan Coogler really didn't want to use it. Oh. But he felt like, like the um, recreating it was, like I think, dishonest in a sense. Interesting. Did you know it was real footage? Yeah, I did. Um, and then, yeah, because it, it kind of plays out 
it shows you what happened in real life. And then as it's being recreated later and you're seeing the same things happening that was that you saw in the footage at the beginning of the film, you that it's that's when it starts taking on this whole other very intense thing of you know what's going to happen and it's unavoidable but yeah again i i think it's handled tastefully Mm -hmm. but it's very yeah it's very impactful so he said um Hoover said and this is a quote uh it was something that i was initially very firmly against using the real footage I didn't want any real footage in the film, but you sometimes have to take a step back. Being from the Bay Area, I knew that footage like the back of my mind, but more people from around the world had no idea about the story. It made sense for them to see that footage and see what happened to Oscar, and I think it was a responsibility that we had to put that out there. From now on, everyone who sits down and sees this film, they see the truth. There's no CGI in that, in what they did to that young man. That's the real deal. Well, and I think that it also, it does make sense because you're bookending the the film with real life because yeah. we start with that and then we're seeing live we're seeing actual footage of Oscar's daughter in real life and the movement around his death and then we're also getting the text on screen update yeah. of where things are at now with the case and some real life uh, stats and information yeah so I, I feel like that device of bookending the film with these real life moments does make sense and does i think help the film stand out as this really pe- this really important piece from a very specific time in history that being this event mm-hmm. and i think everybody involved in it was committed to telling the story as complexly what's the word that you've been using without like as tastefully yeah as yeah, possible yeah. um like Octavia Spencer, who's a producer on the film, they had funding fall through while they were in the midst of making it. And she offered to forego her salary so that they could, t- could continue to make the film, which is something that nobody should ever oh. have to do, particularly a woman of color. Um, but she obviously was incredibly passionate uh, about, about this project, right? And I think you can feel that in the film. So my own struggles with biopic aside... Um, and I struggle with that even if it's an autobiographical presentation as if this is literal truth. I do think that there's so many inherent complications with how you would tell this story in another way that I am glad this film exists and I am glad yeah. that I have seen it. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, And like we said, the the actor's totally bring this thing to life in a really really compelling way um i love watching michael b jordan in anything um i really wish he was still a a, played a a big role in the mcu (laughs) could happen again because he deserves to be there um but i think he i think he's awesome yeah how did this make you feel um it made me feel heavy and sick but grateful for the work of black activists and artists. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm grateful that this exists. Um, and I kind of rent it. It made me feel the things during the beats that it was supposed to feel. It made me feel anger, sadness, heartbroken, joy. I ran the gamut. Um, 
And I maintain, like Ryan Coogler is a really great storyteller that knows how to hit some really great beats within his storytelling. So I'll, I'll always look forward to whatever he has uh, coming up next. Different direction. Oh, man. I was... This, this you were a, not prepared for what this was going to do to you. But, but so we had a night day. where we just didn't quite know what we wanted to watch, and I didn't quite feel up for a mystery movie pick. And for some reason, I think I said we should rewatch something we've already covered on the show, and then you went to our watch lists, which um, is literally not what we've covered on the show. <laughs> yeah. And as you're going through a Netflix watch list, I said, what if we watch Dirty Dancing? And you said, okay. And so we did. We watched the 1987 drama music romance. I don't know if the creeping date of Valentine's Day made me want to watch this, but um, we watched Dirty Dancing. It was directed by Emil Ardolino and written by Eleanor Bergstein. It stars Jennifer Grey as Baby, Patrick Swayze as Johnny, Cynthia Rhodes as Penny, and Jerry Orbach as Dr. Houseman. I have him listed as Jake, but I don't think anyone ever calls him that. (laughs) Um, The synopsis, spending the summer at a Catskills resort with her family, Frances Baby Houseman falls in love with the camp's dance instructor, Johnny Castle. I love this movie. I've been watching this movie my entire life. Um, It seems antithetical to all the movies that I do love that I would also love this movie, but I truly do. (laughs) And we've never watched it together, I don't think. I don't know. If we did, it was a long time ago. I don't have a recollection of it. It's possible we have. But I was like, I I wanted to watch this. And so we did. What did you think of Dirty Dancing? Yeah, I mean, I've maybe seen this two, three times in my life. Wasn't a staple growing up at all. And it wasn't a favorite of my parents. So there was no reason that it was on. And I feel like the times that I have seen it, it's been like a me catching it on TV kind of thing, mm. like never sitting down and watching it. Um, and I think in previous viewings, I don't think I gave it the time of day that this deserves because um, this fucking slaps. Yeah, it is so good. It's such a simple story with a lot of thoughtfulness about family, abortion, privilege, adulthood, so many important just life things and things that people go through all packaged in a movie called dirty dancing (laughs) it's and like it didn't need to go that hard but it did and i think there's something to be said about it's directed by a queer man written by a woman and i think that helps to aid in the complexity from which this story's point of view is told well 100 percent. it's a hundred percent the reason that likely the reason that this stands the test of time the way that it has. So it's so interesting to me because this was a childhood staple of mine. Mm -hmm. Dirty Dancing. I have two older sisters and my oldest sister, she's six years older than me. She loved this movie, right? And Mm -hmm. while I wasn't allowed to watch SNL when they would be watching SNL because that was too adult for me, I somehow was allowed to watch Dirty Dancing. And this is something that we just, you know, we had one TV and... Uh, we watched it as siblings a lot, particularly us three sisters. I have a younger brother, too. I don't really remember if he watched it with us or not. Um, so I just have a lot of really clear memories of, like, watching this, you know, when I was young in my house. Um, we used to rent a cabin um, at a, like, 
lake that's about an hour and a half away. Um, we used to watch it there. But I also then like started to like it on my own in like junior high, high school. And I had a friend that the two of us would watch it together all the time. Um, I have this memory of us just rewatching the dance scene on repeat, like the final, the final, dance. Uh, final dance sequence and being like, when we get married, we're going to do those da- that dance at our weddings. Um, we're, we are follow each other on social media s- still. And she got married. I wasn't invited to the wedding. But I don't think she did the dance. <laughs> and then uh, we aren't going to get married. So so things have changed. But her dad like went and got us uh, McDonald's and brought it down to her room in the basement where we were just <laughs> watching Dirty Dancing's <laughs> final scene on repeat. Um, and then possibly the most fun story I have with this is in, uh, when would that have been? Summer 2016? Summer 2017. I went to New York, um, to upstate New York, and did a writing workshop with the comic artist and writer Linda Berry, who I love. Um, and whenever she hosts this writing workshop, she always ends like the the last night um, where everybody watches Dirty Dancing together, <laughs> and we like air it in the uh, like cabin esque uh, writing space that like the hundred or so of us have been in. And like it's like a PJ party and it's at night and everybody just sits on the floor like slumber party style and we projected it up and watched it together and um, she made everybody sing and dance during the final dance sequence. (laughs) And it was just so fun to be like at this summer camp essentially and then watch this movie set at a summer camp and not a summer camp like an adult summer camp. Anyway, I just Mm -hmm. I have great memories with this film. And it's not just because it's like a silly, fun film. It also, it has some good stuff in it. Oh, yeah. One of those things. uh, Well, I'll say two of those things. And like the two things that I, I don't know why, always remember about this movie is that it has Jennifer Grey in it, which I'll quote Garth from Wayne's World. She makes me feel kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. She's such a babe in this. Um, In a way that just like makes my heart flutter a little bit. And then the second thing is Patty Swayze's butt. Is <laughs> the way. Yeah, as soon as we started watching it, you're like, Patrick Swayze's butt is like a key star in this. And I was like, excuse me, what? And then as soon as like he was on screen, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. He's uh he's got that that dancer's butt. Yeah, big time. But homeboy can can move his hips. Well, he's a da- he was a dancer prior to this, and like I read that. He could dance even better than they allowed him to do. And he was like a little miffed about that Mm -hmm. because he's such a good dancer. But like there's so much iconic stuff in this. And again, having not appreciated it on previous viewings, watching it this time, there's so many more things that just stick. Uh, We'll rewatch this more frequently for sure. Um, Like Hungry Eyes. I've been listening to Hungry Eyes. I listened to it on my commute to work on repeat. and it's just been popping up here or there. Um, something else that that we were kind of noticed too is like the HD does not hide the age difference as well between Patrick yeah. Swayze and Jennifer Grey. I think she's supposed to look younger than she is and she pulls that off. Yeah. And he's supposed to look younger than he is and he doesn't manage to pull that off in HD. And mm-hmm. so therefore, even though they're not, there's not such a discrepancy in real life he looks way older than her. Yeah. Because I think she's supposed to be like just out of high school and he's probably supposed to be like mid-20s. But she was mid-20s and he was mid-30s. 
Yeah. And he looks mid thirties, but she looks eighteen. <laughs> yeah. That four K that four K does not suspend that disbelief no. as well. Um and like <laughs> another thing I remember about this movie is uh baby's sister prepping for the talent show with, yeah. with her little like Hawaii Island inspired song that she's doing. And singing really badly. Yeah. <laughs> So those are the three things I remember: how absolutely babely Jennifer Grey was, Patrick Swayze's butt, and her sister's song. See, and for me, having seen this when I was so young, um, the abortion part of the story is what, like, like that. It scared me as a kid. Yeah, it was profoundly upsetting. Oh yeah. Um, not because she was getting an abortion, but because of the danger oh yeah and like that like the scene where she's sweating and like that's marked in my mind because i've been watching it since i was really young and even though i've you know for as great as this is looking back on a movie from the 80s about privilege and agency and unlearning and having like a a abortion storyline that isn't just um punishing or saying it's wrong Mm -hmm. it is pretty like white liberal politics but i feel like there's no way that this didn't have an impact on how i understood the world and how i understood bodies and agency and that's awesome that like from the Mm -hmm. time i was this age i had depictions that allowed me to consider that the world is more complex than black and white yeah that's so cool. And even though this isn't the most complex, I think it's a pretty great starting point for little baby Kylie in suburbia. Well, just like like I said before, it feels thoughtful. Mm-hmm. All of these things don't feel like throwaway plot points. Mm-hmm. It feels like there is intention to show some truth behind these things and, and some consideration. And within that, in service of the character of Bait. Yeah. Right. So they they mirror together where neither does it feel like it's like a PSA where the characters are secondary, mm-hmm. but also neither does it feel like it's just this rote romance where the plot lines are secondary. They actually merge together really well. It's well written mm-hmm. and it's sexy. Yeah. That's what I mean. I've heard some critiques that the dancing isn't dirty enough or frequent enough, but like when you're little, that's pretty salacious. But like that's that's the kind of the time bending nature of this film though, because it's in set in the early sixties. But we get a lot came of came out in the eighties. But and the music, we start with a lot of sixties music and then <laughs> it's the, then it's just full on eighties music. It's strange, strange. So strange. it does a little like, anachronistic. So so the dirty dancing probably is dirty for the sixties, but for the eighties, probably not as dirty. But for a child in the 80s and 90s watching it, you're like, pretty I dirty. see London, I see Brad. <laughs> <laughs> I see Swayze's underpants. <laughs> yes. I don't know if you ever do see Swayze's underpants, but you see some underpants. <laughs> you definitely see some underpants. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I want to talk about Jerry Orbach for a second, who plays. You Baby's say dad. his name like everyone in the world should know who he is. Uh, you say it as if he's Daddy Warbucks, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great name, Jerry Warbuck. <laughs> plays uh, plays Baby's dad. But um, he's 
awesome in this. There's one particular scene in the later half of the movie where it's just baby talking to him and he's not talking back to her, but everything is just played through his face and his eyes. And it's so, it's such a great scene and he does such a great job, with just subtly getting the emotion across and hearing what his daughter has to say to him. I found it so powerful. I thought it was so good. And I feel like his arc throughout the whole story is really awesome. He is this he is a good man, but he's not a perfect man. And he's a an ignorant man. Yeah, but he's not unwilling to learn. Correct. Yeah. Which is what we want. To learn or unlearn. And there is some stuff where he's like pretty phenomenal. Yeah. He's a very good doctor. He's a very good doctor. doctor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, new girl. Um question for you. Yeah. You ever want to go out to the Catskills with me to the resort where this was filmed to one of their themed weekends? Oh my God. Is it like dirty dancing? Themed? Yes. So like a theme how? Like the same activities oh, and stuff? There is dinners, sock hops, a screening of the film, group dance lessons, scavenger hunt, dirty dancing themed and watermelon tosses and more. They do it three times a year at the resort where the film was shot what's the price tag on that oh that is a great question um dirty dancing cat skills that's american too it is american i have no idea where the cat skills are do you um i would say it's with their paws well it's sold out for 2023 already i don't know what you said something about paws you don't know what cat skills are i said it's with their paws (laughs) god (laughs) The package includes breakfast, lunch, and dinner, exclamation mark, dirty dancing theme scavenger hunt, dirty dancing trivia, group dance lessons, dance party in Mary's barn on Friday and Saturday night, and a full weekend of dirty dancing themed activities. But it's already sold out, so I don't know how much it is. When is it? Whoa. April 28th to 30th, June 23rd to 25th, July 28th to 30th, August 25th to 27th, September 15th to 17th. October 27th to 29th. I got to think. They that, do it a lot. I got to think, though, that that August one is probably the most popular because it's true to when the movie is set. Yeah, they do a lot. They do costume contest, dance party, dirty dancing screening, dirty dancing trivia, dirty dancing scavenger hunt, picnic lunch, dirty dancing screening for a second time, matinee, lawn games, group dance lessons every 20 minutes, private dance lessons that you can sign up for at the front desk, another screening, dinner, by reservation, another dance party, breakfast, and then you check out of there. Is there a talent show? No, but there should be. <sighs> I don't know how much it is. All I'm saying is that sounds fun as heck. It does. Like Now that it's your new favorite movie. But, but I feel like I need to be a bigger Dirty Dancing fan to, I don't know, maybe not. I get really, it's kind of like even though Harry Potter and the Wizarding World is rife with controversy, I feel a little bit like I'm not, as big of a Harry Potter fan as I should be to be able to grace Harry Potter world or whatever. But is there something to be said about you go and then it turns you into the big fan? Like that sometimes happens at concerts where it's like, oh yeah, I kind of like, okay, go. And then I see a show and I'm like, whoa, I love, okay, go. Yeah. You know, it happened with the national too. When we went and saw them at Oshiaga. All I'm saying is it's sold out for 2023. There's a year for you to become the biggest fan in the world. And then we go. It'd be pretty cool. Actually. Are you ready to dance? I will dance. Just dancing every 20 minutes. <laughs> New lessons every 20 minutes. <laughs> and you can get private lessons and maybe fall in love. 
Oh man, over a salsa? Yeah. <laughs> a, do they give you a do you, mamba? Do you think they do lessons? Two hungry eyes. Do you think you uh, get to go on the log? Do you think you get to go in the water? Oh, I don't want to go in the water. Do you think there's someone that steals wallets? <laughs> um, I do you think to, Wayne Knight is there. <laughs> I have to mention that, like, this movie won you over. Yeah, like there was twice where you turned to me and you said that was so good. Here, and, here's the thing: it's the I was in the exact right mood for this. Um, and it, it clicked this, the, and it, it yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna say. It clicked for me, but you've seen it before and it hadn't clicked for you. Therefore, so, returning to our thesis at the start of the episode, when I watch Mirror at the right moment, it'll it click. will click, it'll click, which is why revisiting things is so delightful. Yeah, it can also unclick big time. When we watched This Is 40 the last time, which had clicked for us many a times, or I Love You, Man, and we were just like, Man. Square peg, round hole. Yeah. And it used to not be. But I have to say, so twice you turned to me while we were watching Dirty Dancing and said, this is so good. And then you turned to me. No, you didn't turn to me. I don't think you wanted me to know that this happened. But at the end, there's a really like cheesy but sweet moment. And you just went. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think you intended for me to hear that. Um, And then I was like, wow, I, I think. I think Elliot's kicking something out of his letterbox top four to put Dirty Dancing in there. And, uh, Giles, thanks for the good run. <laughs> I've loved you my whole life, but uh, Dirty Dancing just Double D. Up. Here we go. This was, yeah, it was the right moment at the right time for Dirty Dancing, which is so interesting because, you know, we pretty much almost exclusively watch movies through mystery picks, which means we're opening ourselves to be surprised and to click with something that maybe we weren't anticipating and this happened to be a night where we just were both like yeah let's watch dirty dancing and it worked man bing bang boom how did it make you feel pumped up by how much this slaps i want to rewatch this forever how about you it made me wistful for summer romances i have never had (laughs) (laughs) oh Man. So you need to take me to the cat skills and we'll like pretend we don't know each other and you're a dance instructor. Do you think, I mean like R.I.P. Patrick Swayze, but do you think Jennifer Grey ever makes a little cameo? No. <laughs> mm. They didn't get along when they were filming. The two of them? Yeah. They um. So they had done another film together and like read something and they did not like each other. And then the filmmakers were worried that they were going to equally dislike each other on this. They did a screen test and they were like, no man, their chemistry. Whoa, red hot. But then as they started to make it, they didn't get along. And then the filmmakers made them sit down and watch their screen test to be like, look at the chemistry you guys have. And then they were like, oh, okay. Freaking hot idiots. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't think she does. (laughs) Okay, fine. Anyway, Dirty Dancing's awesome. It is the middle of winter. Bring summer back by watching it on Netflix. Hell yeah. Okay. We took a dip back out to the cinemas and saw the horror mystery thriller from 2023, our second 2023 movie of the year so far, Knock at the Cabin. It was directed by M. Night Shyamalan, written by M. Night Shyamalan, Steve Desmond, and Michael Sherman, and it was based on the book The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. It stars Dave Bautista as Leonard, one of my big old celebrity crushes, Jonathan Groff as Eric, 
Rupert Grint as Redmond, Nikki Amuka Bird as Sabrina, Ben Aldridge as Andrew, Abby Quinn as Adrian, and Christian Swee as Wen. While vacationing, a girl and her parents are taken hostage by armed strangers who demand that the family make a choice to avert the apocalypse. Whoa, what? That's right. Um, okay, let's get into our thoughts, but let's kick things off with the aforementioned piss audience that we had. Uh, What'd you think, starting with the piss? I don't even remember. There's been so many piss audiences. <laughs> it's, it's becoming a uh, epidemic. Oh, this was the one where, did we move? Um, no, we didn't move. We didn't move. But there was chatty people. And then the people, there's chatty people in front of us. There were chatty people beside us. And there was a person beside us who like, near the end of the film was just like, I know this is the final scene and just was like ready to go. Yeah, I'm going to pack up my shit now. Yeah, like putting on their jacket when the final scene wasn't even over yet. And then as soon as like the title card came up, just like, beelined it out of there he also was um like fiddling is a gross word but i can't think of another one right now so fiddling restless but he was but he was fiddling with the like um oh the like recliner yeah and so it'd be like yes but it was very annoying sorry that was i was gonna say the same thing you were writing key that was perfect um. Yeah. So he like beelined it out of there as soon as the title card came on, and the person he was with left her in the dust. I, I, as soon as that happened, I said to you, whoever he was with, friend, partner, whatever, sister, yeah, don't know. Like he was so far ahead, just left her in the dust. I'm like, I would never do this to you. I would never get up and just jet out of the theater and leave you behind. He kind of did that to me at the gym the other day. I'm gonna say. When we were getting oh, into the chip. <laughs> going like, in? Yeah, you like took your shoes off and then like got in the ways that like somebody had bumped into me because you had halted and stopped to take your shoes off and then I got trapped between you and that other person and then you just beelined ahead and didn't even say goodbye to me. This is no, I turned around, I turned around and it said, I'll meet you after. I did not hear and, you. And say you didn't answer me, so I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> I didn't hear you because I was so perturbed by the fact that somebody else was bumping up against me. Here's an ongoing problem with us walking together is that <laughs> I frequently end up ahead of you. And you're but, foot but big you always hate when I end up ahead of you. Well, because I can't see anything. Exactly. And then I and then I can't judge. It's like when you're driving on the highway. And there's a semi truck in front of you and you just feel like, yes, you can drive behind the semi truck. You're going to be fine, but you can't see ahead. So you don't like like if there, if somebody starts braking ahead of the semi truck, you won't see it. Yeah. You have to rely on the semi truck to create the pace. You're the semi truck. But I'm an unreliable semi truck. You absolutely are. You hit the brakes too fast. But I don't know. You just stop in the middle of nowhere. But but I, I don't know why. It, in the dance of walking, I should not be leading. True. <laughs> I feel like you should muscle me out of the way because we run into so I do many a lot. Problems. I do. I grab your arm and I push you back. It's probably because I got the longer legs. So I just naturally y- yeah. end up ahead. Oh, of sometimes you. I'm like, Elliot, I can't go that fast. <laughs> but anyway, I do trust that you wouldn't leave me in the dust when we were leaving somewhere. 
Because I usually you do. did leave me in the dust when we were going to the gym. But sometimes I, I try and I'm, I feel like I'm pretty good at doing the look over the shoulder to, to check in. And sometimes yeah. you'll be far away and I'll be like, okay, I got to I got slow down. And, and hearing that you did do it at the gym, but I was just like, so, ah, uh, that I mean, I mean, yeah, th- there's a lot to, yeah, we can stop. <laughs> <laughs> the point is this guy beelines it out of there is in such a huff and puff to get out, leaves the person he's with behind only to have to return because he left his phone in the seat. Left, yeah, left in such a huff. And Forgot that, shit. my friends, is karma. But the movie, I love M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, let's talk about this for a second. I'm an M. Night Shyamalan apologist. I think most of his movies are great. Yeah. There's a couple that I, I actively didn't like. Um, The Will Smith one. After Earth. Didn't like that. Um, I haven't seen Airbender. I didn't, like and I that. haven't seen his like first two films. Every other thing he's done, I've either loved mm-hmm. or liked or thought. I'm not mad. I saw it. Mm-hmm. I love Lady in the Water. I saw that happening three times in the theater. Come at me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of the same way, and I feel I could literally feel my as I was growing up and going to see growing up loving M. Night Shyamalan movies and then going to see them on my own, I could literally feel my friend group peeling away from me <laughs> as I was like, oh, I want to go see the new M. Night. And they were like, I'll go if I can freaking shit talk it the whole time. I'm like, I don't want any of that. Yeah, so. no, no. Um, I'm pretty sure the reason we are so bonded and our relationship is so strong is that we both like Lady in the Water. Yeah. I think that is the foundation of a successful partnership yeah is both really liking the same piece of art that everybody else dislikes finding a fellow lady in the water fan is a gift my dad liked it too a gift so i didn't love old yeah same i didn't hate it but i didn't love it love gail garcia bernal though yes and it was a fun watch it's just in the end i was like eh, i really liked this me too i liked it a lot i was very tense and engaged throughout it. Mm-hmm. I thought everyone did a great job acting. I thought it was really good, like mid-level horror in terms of scares. Like it's not too scary. Mm-hmm. So you can, and I think that that's what M. Night does really well is he like opens up mm-hmm. horror in a way that at least for me, I find that it still scratches that horror itch in me, but yet other people who maybe don't love horror, it's light enough for them. It's like a good middle ground. Yeah, he definitely favors the tell over the show in terms of show and tell. Yeah, he loves a good exposition dump at the end, which is not my favorite technique, but I do think it makes for accessible film. And I'm not even just talking about the end. I'm talking about the whole way through. Like he'll choose to not show potentially violent sequences. He'll and like he'll mm. explain things that are going to happen or things that could happen through, and then ca- not through character them, dialogue right? and then not show those things. Yeah. And I love that. I think it's so great. And I do think it makes for an accessible film both in understanding the film. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, Mirror ain't for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's not a very accessible film. Um, and I think it also makes it accessible in terms of like it's not too violent, it's not too bloody, it's not too scary. But it's also not not those things. Like The Sixth Sense scared the absolute piss out of me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And even some of the things that like objectively aren't that bad, but like the puking scene... 
mm-hmm. and like the shotgun in the back of the head. Like those just um and I think there's some stuff that if I saw Nog at the Cabin when I was really little would have scared me quite a lot. Oh yeah. But nothing that's like too intense. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I feel I feel I agree with what you said too. Like sometimes he can get too telly. Yeah. He loves he loves a tell. Yeah, like he he excels for so much of a film in subtlety and restraint. And then he'll just kind of be like, it's kind of like he's holding it all in. And then he's like, Mwah. <laughs> and then just. <laughs> and I can't stop now. Yeah. I need to tell you. Yeah. It's like, it's like when you have a surprise for someone and you're like trying to wait until the right moment. And then you're like, ah, fuck it. I'm going to tell you right now. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of does that a little bit. It's kind of like, I don't want to, I want to say explicitly what it is, but it's kind of like the end of signs where there is a way to deliver that final moment where isn't we see exactly what it is, but there's a way to show it. The way he shows it initially through the TV is amazing. Yeah. But then once that camera turns around, it's like. I guess he's kind of got that Stephen King thing of like the endings usually aren't total slam dunks, but I still like it. Yeah. Like it doesn't fully jump the shark, but it. But the sharks, it's halfway out the water. It thinks about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Want to talk about your boyfriend? Yeah, so it's pretty well known in this house that uh, I really love. In this house. That I love Jonathan Jonathan Groff. Uh, I got a big old crush on him when we watched Looking, which we've talked about several times. Marie Bartlett was in it in the recent episode, or episode three of The Last of Us. Uh, And now watching Jonathan Groff. I I think it's the universe just being like, Rewatch Looking. You should rewatch Looking. Um, We watched Looking... And the first place we ever lived together. So we and like you had the biggest crush on Jonathan Groff. Like and I think on Patrick particularly, like the character of Patrick mm-hmm. immediately. And then that has been your like number one crush. He has been your number one crush for like so long now. Yeah. Did you like him in Mindhunter? Did you think he was cute? Yeah, but they I didn't like the the character as mm. as much. But I still love watching him work. Do you have the biggest crush on him? In Hamilton, yes or no? Is that where you have your biggest crush on? Yeah, him? especially when he gets all spitty. <laughs> Hot, yeah. Oh man! No, you have the biggest crush on him. And looking, I'm assuming. Yeah, I think he's cutie patootie in this. It's just like when he plays normal people and he's not trying to hunt mines and stuff. Not trying to hunt mines or like colonialize shit. Who's col? When's he been colonialized? Oh, in or when he's like trying to save the ice princess. Col- colonize? Yeah. What did you say? Colonialize. colonialize. <laughs> Come to colonialize. Uh, that makes me feel like he's just like is trying to force ornate hats on people. <laughs> or like really get everyone to go to Fort Edmonton Park. <laughs> yeah. It's a marketing um, ploy. Um, yes. Yeah. And he's got a hell of a voice. Also watching the like really uh, shitty quality resolution bits of him in Little Shop of Horrors is delightful. When you say he has a hell of a voice, do you mean a singing voice or are you just like listening to him talk? Yeah, both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that you I love that you love him. I love that you've got a big old crush on him and I knew that you were going to be like even more into this because he was in it. Yeah. Which then makes me even more into it because I like support that. Um <laughs> yeah. He was he was really good in it. Oh yeah. I was like 
hearing that Jonathan Groff was going to be in an M Night movie, I was losing my mind. I thought that was incredible. And yeah, he's very good in this. I did think so. I don't really know Ben Aldridge, who plays. <laughs> we can't. We would be remiss to not say that Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge's Aldridge's characters, Eric and Andrew, for most of the film, are referred to as Daddy Eric and Daddy Andrew. <laughs> yeah, which is so great in general, but also particularly great for this show. And they both are definitely daddies. Um, I don't really know Ben Aldridge. I thought he was really good in this. Yeah, really great. I think Andrew's character is the character on which the emotional complexities of the film ride. And he carries that really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the little girl who played when Kristen was so good. Yeah, very sweet. Um, yeah. very. It must have been tough to be like the only kid on set, and I thought she did a great job. Uh, and like handling some very intense scenes too, and not only just being kind of this kid that's like go to your room. Like she was integral to a lot oh, yeah. of these big scenes. The opening scene of this film, the way that it was shot was really unsettling. Mm-hmm. And it's her and Dave Batista acting their asses off along with the way that M. Night is directing to create this immediate sense of discomfort. Yeah. I mean, the movie starts off for all intents and purposes with a conversation. Mm-hmm. And... It is so compelling. It gets you right into the the meat of this film. I know a lot of people are on this train, but I think that the work that Dave Bautista did here was awesome. I think for what his character needed to do, I found it very compelling. And he he definitely had me leaning in. Um, But you kind of mentioned how M. Night chose to film it, and he does this throughout the whole film. Oh, it was... I think that this seeing this in the, the it made me grateful to see this in the theater because it was even more impactful is that he did so many close cropped shots mm-hmm. of literally the the actor's face is taking up the whole screen. Mm-hmm. Bottom of the chin is on the bottom, top of the head's at the top and it's just their face filling the whole screen. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like you're talking into my soul. Do you know that he shot it on 35 millimeter? No, that's cool. The goal was to give it a classic 90s thriller look, which is like, that's our shit. Yeah. We grew up on that. Yeah. So there might have been a subtle way that that made us like it even more, too. I also read, and I cannot find any confirmation of this anywhere, so it may be false. Okay. It's on the IMDb trivia, but I can't find it on Reddit. I can't find it on Google. So maybe IMDb trivia is just not reliable. It says on there that um, during the premiere, uh, some of the premieres, um, there would be a thing at the front that said, make your choice. And then it said, would you give up something you care about most for the duration of the film? Prove it. Your sacrifice could be rewarded. And then if you gave up your cell phone for the film, you got a prize at the end. (laughs) That's great. I love that thought, but I can't find evidence that it's true. Oh, Hmm. Yeah. I would love for people to be made to give up their cell phones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All times, everywhere. Especially the people who are in front of us in this movie. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, yep. Um, I like this movie. There's two more things I want to talk about in terms of M. Night, uh, M. Night's approach to directing this. Um, I mean, one, 
Something I really appreciate that he stuck to his guns about is that all of his films have an opening credit sequence. And they're always great. Like think about the signs opening credits. And then on this one, it's kind of a bunch of pans over imagery. And then like this very kind of jarring typesetting. But he wants to take the time out of his films to have full out opening credit sequences. There's not a lot of that happening now. It's very much get into the movie and there's no credits, maybe a title card, or there's there's nothing till the end of the movie. Um, and I think that that's just a testament to, you know, people's patience. And it's just mm-hmm. like we people don't want to see opening credit sequences. I do. I like them. And I think I, I, I feel like if you do them well, that's even better. Like, look at what HBO does. Their opening credit sequences are and even even Netflix they put time and effort into them so that you don't want to skip them so that it's a joy to watch even time and time again. So I appreciate that. And then there is a signature camera pan move that, that he does in this that I love that he does in most of his work. It's just where we kind of start in one spot and then we do a very slow pan and it's like revealing something or following somebody and you don't see every it's some some parts of it are obscured and you don't see everything. I just love that stuff. It builds so much tension and he's so good at it and he does it so often. I, I just wanted to note it because uh if you can't if you can't tell because we've already said it, but we love him my channel. Yeah, we love him and I thought this was one in like the like decidedly good books. I think there's some where I get why you don't like Lady in the Water and the Happening. That's fine. I mean, it's not, but it is. I I can agree to disagree, but I think that this is just good. Yeah. It's not God tier. It's not Signs Unbreakable Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. It's pretty damn good, and I will rewatch it. Yeah, same. I don't, I mean, I know that there's tons of stuff out there about conversations about M. Night Shyamalan and, and the things that he's chosen to make. Like, I, I feel like his is such an interesting journey where it seemed like he was... It's almost like he wanted to take, to take like a Spielberg kind of path mm. um, and do, you know, do the big drama thing, do the horror thing, do the the family adventure thing, the fantasy thing. But there is a, spe- a specific type of storytelling he's really good at. And I think that that got reignited when he came back for the visit. I liked the visit a lot. That one had a piss audience, too. But yeah, but uh, I'll happily watch everything that he yeah. puts out moving forward. I will, too. Yeah. We love that night. Yeah, I make you feel. I make me feel tense and invested. And that's what I want from a movie like this. Yeah, it, it made me feel tense and engaged. But most importantly, it reaffirmed my love for M. Night storytelling. And Jonathan Groff's face. Um, Last film. Horror. Who are you calling? <laughs> I'm not afraid of no ghosts. <laughs> um, we went and saw... The 2022 horror sci-fi thriller, The Outwaters. This came onto my radar when I saw the filmmaker Kyle Edward Ball, who made Skinamarink, post on Twitter. He was like, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can like The Outwaters and Skinamarink, and you don't have to like compare us and pit us up against each other. He said it more eloquently than that. And I was like, ooh, what's this, The Outwaters? And I kind of was just like, okay, it's this like other indie horror film that's getting a lot of buzz. Um, And then it came to Metro and I was like, fuck yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I was just like, let's go. I didn't know anything about it. other than It's an indie horror film and people people are talking about it. 
you didn't know anything about it. This really could have been a this sadness situation where it was like really awful graphic violence that just we're not into, which is yeah. like totally okay if you like that. It's just not our jam. Um, but it wasn't. <laughs> so The Outwaters, 2022, directed and written by Robbie Banfitch, starring Robbie Banfitch as Robbie, Angela Basilis as Ange, Scott Shamel or Scammel as Scott, and Michelle May as Michelle. Synopsis, four travelers encounter menacing phenomena while camping in a remote stretch of the Mojave Desert. What do you think? Yeah, like you said, I knew absolutely nothing about it. I didn't even know about the discourse online that you mentioned. Um, but the one thing I did know, because you told me, was that this was a found footage movie. And we don't, we're not getting nearly the amount of these coming out that we were for a, a stretch of time in like the... I don't know, late aughts, mm-hmm. early 2010s. Um, I love found footage. Yeah, there's I something, love it. There's something about it. It, it. it just roots it in realism, and that makes it even more <sighs> scary, Perry. Scary, Perry. <laughs> I also think by its very nature, it requires a sense of innovation and experimentalism. With like, yeah. how are you going to convincingly incorporate the device of found footage? Mm-hmm. And then how are you going to use that in interesting like ways with how the camera looks, the angles, how it moves? I just like it. So to to that too, I think that they do some really unique things with the footage. But one of my favorite things that they chose to do with the device of found footage and handheld cameras is that they they essentially break the film into chapters that are based on memory cards mm-hmm. from the camera. So there'd just be a intertitle that would just say card one, card two, and throughout the film. I really liked that. <laughs> I, I haven't seen that before, but I thought that was really smart and it helped build and escalate the tension as the film went on. Yeah, I really, I really like that. And once this film, it, it does the typical kind of, you know, setting everything up, introducing us to the characters, meanders in that world a little bit. But as soon as this kicks in, it's all in. It kicks. <laughs> yeah, as soon as it kicks in, it freaking kicks in. Yeah. I mean, this this film has some visuals that are burned into my memory by the end of it that I will never forget. And I, what a testament then, right? Like this is, independent filmmaking, incredibly low budget, first feature film, and yet created imagery that you will not forget. And I think that's where it's getting its comparison to Skinamarink. Mm. Very DIY, both queer filmmakers, Mm. both incredibly low budget, and both doing things in innovative ways that are either being said to be lazy, no talent, boring, trash, which I disagree with, But those are like, these are both movies that like they're getting half stars and they're getting five stars. Yeah. Or are being lauded as experimental and innovative and pushing the genre in new directions, which I do agree with. Yeah. Neither of these were five out of five for me. Yeah. But I really liked both of them. Mm -hmm. And I heard somebody say on Reddit, heard, saw, somebody say on Reddit that like, like Skinamarink, it was about Skinamarink, like Skinamarink or not, and I'm going to say that about this film too, like The Outwaters or not, they said someday... Somebody is going to make the most brilliant horror film 
that like shakes us to our core and changes the game. And they are going to say that they were inspired to make film because of Skin Rank. Yeah. And that film wouldn't exist without this one. But there are, like, I mean, there are people saying that about, like, Skinner Marink and the Outwaters, that these are such fresh films, and I think that they are. Mm-hmm. Like them or not, I think that they're fresh. I think that they're, we haven't seen found footage like this in so long, and yet it's not just Blair Witch Redux. It's not just um, Paranormal Activity Redux. It's doing something new. Yeah, I mean, when we were talking about it after we got out of it, the fact that we can talk about this film and the 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 comparisons that came up were Blair Witch, yeah, but also 2001 A Space Odyssey and Eraserhead. And the those are three very different films, but the fact that you can have experiences that evoke those same kind of feelings that we got when we watched those, really impressive. And it even, it even brought out feelings that I've never necessarily felt before in a film, um, just based on what I was seeing on screen. Like, that's really impressive. I love work that's being done like that. So I found a really great um, interview with the director. There's not a lot out there for just like on the wiki page or on the IMDb page because it, not a lot of people have seen this yet. Mm-hmm. Like it's, again, testament to how bang in the programming is at Metro that this came out in the theater at Metro three showings as soon as it was available to. Like I'm so happy about that because otherwise we wouldn't have a chance to see it. Um, but I found a really great interview with the director and I think it was uh, after it was screened at a festival and he talked about how one of his or his two key inspirations were Terrence Malick films oh. which we've never seen No, but I get it mm-hmm. and nature so he said it was his love for nature because it can be quote completely beautiful and completely terrifying yeah it's kind of like space like there is an understanding but there is a lot of not understanding. Or the ocean, right? This idea of like it is both mysterious and magical and wondrous and compelling and beautiful and also terrifying. Yeah. And dangerous and and brutal. We like to think that we have control or understanding over it, but some there's just something about the fact that we live on a planet in the middle of a a galaxy that is far far away it, it is incomprehensible and that's the terror of it right this mm-hmm. the what's incomprehensible and there's a that this film plays with that mm-hmm. um so there's a <laughs> real piss audience here um <laughs> which i then had a very cute and delightful back and forth conversation with Metro Cinema on Letterboxd in the comments. Yeah. Where they were like, we're trying to make it better. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I have to say publicly, I, so I do a tag on Letterboxd that says piss audience. And that's just, I'm trying to collect like where our audience is bad. And for the most part, it's Cineplex. And for the most part, it's horror movies. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, we've seen like 60 movies at Metro in the last handful of months and mm-hmm. there's been like two bad audiences. So it's not a Metro thing. Um, but it does seem to, both of the movies we saw where the audiences were bad were horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a shame because I, I've gotten better at just being like, I'm going to move if people are annoying because mm-hmm. I know that I can't change their behavior. But I also know that if I stay, I'm not I'm going to be pulled out of my experience. And there was somebody, we were in the mezzanine and there was somebody in the, um, on the main floor that was using their phone. And so 
that was I didn't want to have to stare at a bright screen the whole time. And then there was people talking really loudly and we were like five minutes into the movie and they were still talking. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, let's move. So we did and it was better. Those people were so loud that even on the main floor we could still hear them, but it was a lot better. Um, But I do think it pulled away a little bit, the fact that I was like, okay, let's move, from the opening scene of this movie, which is incredible. Yeah. It is horrifying. And sets you up for the fact that this, some of the most disturbing stuff in this film is sonic. Yeah. Is auditory. The hedgehog. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> um, no, the sound design is horrifying. Yeah. And very loud. Mm-hmm. It's a film you might want to bring earplugs to, but it's oppressive. Yeah. Like it bombasts you with it and it is the screams of terror in this film feel real. Mm-hmm. There are no Buffy the Vampire Slayer getting her scream back. <laughs> yeah. They are like, this is what it sounds like if someone was literally being terrorized. Yeah. And it is chilling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Got, got me right down to the bones. I will say, this being a found footage movie, it does fall into bleepy territory a little bit. Yeah, I um, I didn't feel bleepy, but I had a headache by the end, probably because it's both very loud and very shaky cam. Well, and it's not just, I mean, this device is used really, really effectively, but it's not just the fact that it's a shaky cam, but it takes place at night and it only has, all it has for lighting is a single flashlight <laughs> with just the smallest beam so it's just the small circle of what's actually visible on screen and it is moving everywhere so trying to get your bearings of okay what am i focused on focusing on what am i seeing which on one level is like oh my god what am i looking at but on the other on the other hand on the other side it's like oh my god what am i looking at <laughs> <laughs> All that being said, I wouldn't take away having seen this in the theater. No, I I am really grateful that we got to see this. Um, and I'd want to revisit it at home. I feel the same way at the end of it that I felt about Skin and Marink, like really grateful to have experienced this in a communal space, such as the theater, but I want to re-experience it at home. Yeah, we're like, there aren't going to be people, be people who laugh at it. There aren't going to be people talking through it. There was a couple walkouts. Yeah, um, control the volume a little bit more. And there was this really distressing to me that when the film ended at Metro more than any other cinema, people tend to clap at the end of the movies, Mm -hmm. which is awesome. And there was clapping at the end of this film, but some of it felt earnest and some of it felt like, yeah, I loved that. And some of it felt like it was mean spirited. And some people were clapping and being like, thank God. Yeah. And I'm like, that's fine. I get it. I totally get why someone would hate this movie. I personally really liked it. But. Why you gotta be a dink about it? Why you gotta why you gotta pop my bubble? Why you gotta rain on my parade? Well and then to further pop the bubble, they somebody oh. in the mezzanine discovered that they uh they were casting a shadow between the projector and the screen, so they started doing like shadow puppets. Shitty shadow puppets. So they're being obnoxious for themselves in front of a theater full of other people. And it was during the credits, but like Like the movie or not, and I might have said this on the show before, but I read somewhere and I can't remember who said it, that like a film being made and ending up in a theater is a miracle, whether it's a terrible film or an amazing film. Oh, yeah. 
people put whether you hated this and thought it was a waste of an hour and a half of your life and some of your money or not people put time and effort into this this is the credits of all of the people who put time and effort into it and you are disrespecting that when you are casting shadow puppets over it you're also disrespecting the theater yeah i personally think but um maybe i'm just a big grouch it's it's just so obnoxious because that is a purely selfish thing and not even an ounce of thought or consideration is being paid towards the other people that are in the theater. And nobody started laughing and being like, do this, don't like do a donkey. If so, it'd be like, <laughs> do a donkey. Well, there was donkeys in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Didn't you hear somebody in the theater go donkey? That was a really bad attempt at sounding like Shrek. <laughs> Can you do a better one? Donkey. That was better. Yeah. Sorry. Somebody did that in the theater. Um, yeah. Okay. Enough about the piss audience. People, people, people at horror movies tend to be like that, and it's a bit of a shame. There was also a lot of people in there who were clearly really excited to be there, or people who were respectful, even if they didn't like the movie. I have seen many movies I didn't like, and I kind of save my complaints until I get out of earshot of people who maybe did like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the director Robbie Banfitch seems like he's fun. Yeah. In this interview, he talked about. I have to read you this quote. There's, there's a couple like really arresting shots of donkeys. Mm-hmm. To bring it back to the donkeys. This is a quote from the interview um, because the interviewer asked like, oh, how did those shots come about? Like, what was the intention of them? And this is what Robbie Banfitch said. We can all thank Scott, my co-star slash friend, because they were just there and I was in a bad mood and I didn't feel like filming them. And he was like, you have to get out of the car and film them. So thank you, Scott. It's hard for me to start recording. I have issues with getting going, but once I'm recording, I will just get totally lost in shooting. So I was able to get plentiful shots of the burrows. I can't imagine the movie without those wild donkeys. I can't believe not wanting to film them because I was grumpy. What an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) He seems great because you were reading me some other stuff too about um, people were asking him like, hey, what's the significance of this this piece of the film? And he's just like, oh, I just thought it was scary. Well, yeah, I have a great quote from him where the interviewer asked about like the body horror in the film, which like really ramps up near the end and like the question of queerness as it connects to body horror. And he said, what I would say is that It was just a human thing for me when it comes to the destruction of the human body. That said, I was aware that people could find layers in a particular scene, but everything came from instinct and was not necessarily about me thinking about symbolism in any way. If there was anything stemming from me growing up as a closeted gay person through my early formative years, I'm not aware of it specifically. Mm -hmm. So I love that he's not like, yeah, I didn't intend it. Doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. And I love that. Uh, That's that's what's great about art. He also commented on... (laughs) A review where somebody literally just like retold the whole movie, but in a very like the movie sucks tone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it started with this is a movie about I'm paraphrasing, but this is a movie about a director so enamored with his big toe that he made an entire film about it. And that and the review is long. And then at the end of it it says, There you go. I I watched it so you didn't have to. If you watch it now after having read this, then you've wasted my time. And like Robbie Banfitch commented on Letterboxd and said, well, I disagree with much of what you have said. I really appreciate the review. Don't delete it, especially like the stuff about the big toe part. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. It's just really fun. So I don't know. He also, um, they asked him about like the practical effects, which you were quite taken with. Oh, yeah. And he said, "Eh, it's just about using logic to think, how could I make something? If you make something for a horror movie and it doesn't look real, you have to make it again. None of it was expensive. You just have to keep working on it until it feels right and looks right on camera. That's awesome. I I love that. That's that is just somebody that has an idea and is willing to work with other cool people to help bring that idea to life. 
Well, and I just, I don't know. I get so excited about like indie horror and I'm so willing to give it a try and like give it the benefit of the doubt. Like as we were driving home, we're like, oh, did we like it a seven or an eight out of 10? And I was like, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt because the audience was distracting me. And like, this is a first time filmmaker trying to do some, a first time feature filmmaker trying to do something new. I think that's awesome. And I want to see what he does next. Yeah. And I want to see what Kyle Edward Ball does next after Skin and Marink. I'm excited to see where they go. Yeah. I think horror movies, especially that the genre is just so stuffed and people, people have a lot of thoughts and feelings and people really, especially horror fans are like, okay, let's see what you got. Um, more closed minded horror movie fans can be very like, okay, arms crossed. Scare me. <laughs> Entertain Come me. At me. Yeah. But I, I'm just along for the ride. I love watching new horror film, even if they're using thing, things that went through a big phase, such as found footage and has died down substantially to, to see one now and f- have it feel so fresh and inventive and innovative. That's what I'm there for, man. Yeah, I really liked it. I could see myself liking it even more on a rewatch. Totally. How did the Outwaters make you feel? A little bleepy, but fully compelled. Just excited to be a horror movie fan. That's what this and Skinema Rink have have going for it. Just like really, really spicing up my love for horror movies. Agreed. I get excited when it's like, yeah, I want to see what's next in horror. Mm -hmm. Love it or not, I want want the new new. Oh, the new new. How make you feel? It made me feel a sense of absolutely unchained tension and discomfort (laughs) and a little bit pukey. Yeah. But I'm not mad about it. Not at all. All right. Ooh, all right. Piss audiences, horror movies, mind blown brain blender of Tarkovsky, dirty dancing extravaganza, the question of biopics. It's now time for dads. Dads of the week. Okay. Rad dads, bad dads. Let's get into it. Okay. Okay. My bad dad nominee of the week was Leonard from Knock at the Cabin. Ooh. interesting tell me tell me so i don't really have a long winded explanation for this but the thing that stuck with me the most is that he uses kindness to manipulate yeah which is dangerous when it comes to parenting because i feel that can be very manipulative to not just emotionally but to also get something from someone yeah or to instill that sort of behavior into someone yeah which they can then take into later relationships or even just how they live their day-to-day life which is in a whole on its own level quite frightening to me that's my pick how about you i picked andrew from knock at the cabin daddy andrew huh? daddy andrew i picked daddy andrew so my reason for this was although he clearly loves his family and is devoted to his partnership and his child Mm -hmm. his protective nature is so imposing as to be restrictive to others thoughts and feelings um his own fears and desires impact his ability to see and honor other people's points of view including his partner and his child's and even though it comes from a place of love and desire to protect there are moments where he is so dismissive of eric's point of view because he is the one who is going to protect them Mm-hmm. And you get the sense that this has been a small p- 
pattern in their relationship and that it has never been big enough to derail them in any way, but that it has been a pressure point at times. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think Leonard's probably the better pick. I struggled with this. So I, I was also considering picking daddy Andrew um, for a lot of those reasons. Like there's just a lot more fleshed out with him than there is with Leonard. And I could pick those things too, but. But I don't think he's a bad dad. I think I was just, this was a struggle of a week. There weren't a lot of like inherently bad dads. There were people who I think would uh, lend themselves to really complex discussions in a deep dive where we talk about just like what, what does this help us understand about dad as opposed mm -hmm. to bad or rad? The binary is really failing us here because binaries always fail. Um, oh, you heard it here first. Woo! The binaries <laughs> always fail. Yeah. Bam. But I think for posterity's sake, let's pick Leonard. <laughs> okay. All right. Leonard. Leonard don't, don't be, be our, our dad. dad. Bad dad is your pick. I pick baby. Oh. Baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I pick baby Houseman. Francis baby Houseman. Baby Houseman. We are taking her out of the corner, putting her front and center. At least I am. Because she works at unlearning, which is hard work. And she looks like a real privileged baby at times <laughs> and yet she allowed like and she's clearly uncomfortable when she's confronted with that with her own ignorance with her own privilege aren't we all and yet she sits in the discomfort she learns from the discomfort and she works at unlearning and then sharing what she has learned through her unlearning with others to push others to also like she uses her privilege to push others with privilege to also do the work that she has done which is literally what you need allies to do she she demonstrates what it means to be a good ally in this film and to be a good ally for like other women like this film is mm. not about race it's a very white film but she does a good job of showing how like socioeconomically right mm -hmm. she also yeah she stands up for herself but she does it with kindness i just like i just think she's great yeah yeah i Okay, so I, I picked Jake Houseman, so baby's dad. Ah, okay. So, like, the reason I, I picked him, uh, we already kind of talked about it, but, I mean, he is caring and supportive of of his family, and specifically of baby. Um, and he does come up, come up clutch in that sort of, in a very dad way, in a responsible dad kind of way. And like I said before, like he's not perfect at all and that he does have some very, at times, narrow-minded views about things. But, uh, and this helps your argument, Baby comes in to help him unlearn certain things and to reflect on those things within himself. And I think the thing is, is that he does, he does that work and it is showcased, but it takes Baby to get there. So, I think that. So, we're taking Baby out of the corner? All right. Francis Baby Houseman, be, be our dad. dad. Okay. So, I had Baby as a bonus daddy. Yeah. But I also had Daddy Eric as a bonus daddy. <laughs> so, will we just honor Daddy Eric because Baby has already been... You can put a little flame symbol on her, too. All right. But name her Rad Dad with a flame. <laughs> but... I know that you love Daddy Eric. Daddy Jonathan Groff. It's right in the name. He's the bonus daddy. There you go. Round, round. Woo, woo. Daddy Eric. 
Okay. Do a little quick rad wreck of the week. Shouting it back to when we don't always talk about things you can buy, but just things you can do to make your life a little bit more pleasant. Um, spontaneously ask your friends to hang out. When you're feeling like you miss them, when you're feeling a little restless, when you're looking to get out of the house, when you're looking to have someone at the house, just ask your friends and be willing to hear no. But if you never ask to spontaneously hang out, you'll never have a spontaneous hangout. We had a lovely, lovely, lovely spontaneous board game night. We played Mario Party with the goal to be the one who loses mm-hmm. and who won. You did. Yeah, Kai won. Yeah, it... Um. I think that as we become adults and get older, everything needs to fit into a a schedule and when we have time and seeing what works for everybody. But something like a spontaneous friend hang just kind of takes you back to when you're a kid and you go to your friend's house and be like, can so-and-so come out and play? Um, <laughs> and, and sometimes you hear no. Actually, no, they're having dinner right now. <laughs> right? Yeah. Some, sometimes. They have to do their homework. They're uh, They're grounded. You're like, oh, fuck. (laughs) What did they do? (laughs) But nobody was grounded. Everybody was up for it. Got out of our sweatpants. (laughs) Nobody was grounded. (laughs) Played some Betrayal at House on the Hill. Played some Mario Party to lose. Had some snacks. It was awesome. It was very lovely. So So we challenge you to ask a friend to a spontaneous hangout. Take a chance. Take a chance. Take a chance. (laughs) Yeah. Have a spontaneous hangout. Thank you for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Hopefully Apple's figured out its stuff and we're on time. would love to drop a new episode every Thursday. <laughs> uh, until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs over on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Usernames are in the show notes. And we'd absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. And check out our Beginners episode with Rich O'Coin. If you haven't seen Beginners, friggin' watch Beginners because it's amazing. And then listen to our lovely conversation with Rich about the film. But that is going to do it for these two babies out of the corner this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.